Pity the dogs and dishes, babes with big daddies, granting their wishes. What is it like in a society when all of the stories, all of the songs, and all of the images are created by people who either don't care about faith or may actually be ag aggressively inimical to faith. Well, uh, I don't have to answer the question because we live in the society. In the conversation which constitutes American culture, all these different voices coming together, we need to cultivate a stronger, more imaginative, and creative series of Catholic voices. This is the story of Dana Joya, Poetry and the Accessibility of the Arts. Hey listeners, Jules here. So we began today's episode with an incredible piece called Pity the Beautiful. The composition was put together by composer and musician Helen Sung with vocalist Jean Baylor and based on the poetry of a tour de force in the American arts community, Dana Joya. I'm Dana Joya. I am a poet and writer who lives in California. Dana Joya, an award-winning poet and author, former head of the National Endowment for the Arts and current poet laureate in the state of California. And for our story today, in the final years of his career, a voice for the revival of the Catholic arts in America. Chances are, listeners, that your life has in some way been affected by the work of Mr. Joya, and you likely have no idea. <laughs> I have to be honest, I reached out to Mr. Joya on a bit of a prayer. I have just an itty-bitty, little lowly Catholic podcast, still relatively new. Dana has rubbed shoulders with world leaders, been interviewed numerous times by NPR, and even had his works made into operettas and, as we just heard, amazing jazz albums. So you could imagine my surprise when not only did I hear from Mr. Joya, but I heard from him like right away. <laughs> he loved the idea of this podcast, sent me tons of his work and spent over an hour chatting with me. As I wrote my script, I realized, though, that I shouldn't have been so surprised. Because the way Dana approached me, thoughtful, open, and accessible, illustrates how he's lived his whole life. And in a sense, even encompasses the mission for his entire professional life, making the arts accessible to everyone. So today is all about how one person can impact so many, and perhaps more importantly, how Dina's own life, story, and works can be a model for how we each are called to encounter the arts in our own lives. So let's begin by going back to the beginning. Dana Joya was born on December 24th, 1950 to working class parents in California. 
His father was Italian, his mother was a Mexican immigrant, and thanks to the hard work and dedication of his parents, Dana became the first person in his family to go to college. I realized at an early age, about 19, that I wanted to be a poet. I then began to face the complicated question of how does a poet make a living? And Dana answered that question a bit differently over the years. He tried grad school at first, but ended up leaving, worked in business for about 15 years, but all the while still sought after his dream of writing poetry full-time. He would write at night and on the weekends and started to have some success and notoriety in the writing world. And it's here that I want to break up our story a little bit. Because as I talk to Dana, I realize so much of his life, his story can be articulated in his own works. And isn't that what all artists should be doing anyway, right? (laughs) I would wager, should you look through Dana's writings and poetry over the years, you would very much uncover certain truths about Dana and his mission at those particular moments in his life. So we're going to take three pieces of writing and use those pieces to tell the story of how Dana's life has come to impact each of us, even if we are unaware. First up, the article which, in a sense, started it all. The essay you're talking about is called Can Poetry Matter? It was first published in Atlantic Monthly in 1991, and to everyone's surprise, it generated more mail than any essay on any subject had in the entire history of the Atlantic. So what was so controversial about this essay, Can Poetry Matter? So controversial that it caused such a stir among the readers of the Atlantic. Well, in this article, Dina articulated a set of issues that it turned out a lot of people had, but nobody was really talking about. You see, although poetry was wildly professed, Dana estimates there are actually thousands of people in our country who would consider themselves poets, who maybe wrote and even teach poetry. In spite of all of this, there had never been a society in history where poetry meant less to the general public. I dared to say that perhaps there was a connection between the way that poetry had been taught and institutionalized in the United States and its marginalization. And so the article articulated something which so many had been afraid to say previously. There is something strange happening in the creative writing establishment. For some reason, poetry seemed cut off from the common person which for Dana was an enormous cultural problem. As Dana explained both to me and in the 1991 article, history is made of poets. And poets in almost all other time periods were not necessarily a part of a particular profession, but poets were seen in a wide variety of areas. Poets were teachers, but they were also craftsmen, musicians, and even priests. For Dana, because poetry had become simply segregated to those who taught in creative writing, for example, the rest of the society wasn't participating in the creative acts which poetry can offer. I have a sentence which ran something like this. It's not a bad thing for poets to become college professors. It is a bad thing when all poets are college professors. You lose the diversity 
life experience and uh, vision that I think is necessary for the vitality of an art. As Dana and I spoke about this time in his life, I found myself nodding to what he was saying. Because here's the thing, recently, especially as an adult, I have struggled with poetry. I have assumed, and perhaps there's a little bit of truth to this, that poetry wasn't really meant for me. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. As a young girl, I remember loving studying poetry, memorizing poems. My parents even bought me different books of poetry. I remember I particularly loved African-American poets like Langston Hughes and Eloise Greenfield. But somewhere in my own story, I slowly started to fall away from the craft. And I think a big part of that is what I've heard others in my own life say, right? It's too snobby, I've heard people say. Or that's just for people with masters in fine arts, (laughs) right? I have heard so many people say that they can't get into poetry, not simply because they don't understand certain poems. I think we all recognize that there will be poetry that we just won't understand, especially in the first reading. No, rather... People didn't like poetry for the exact reasons that Dana was pointing out. It seemed too selective. They don't understand it because they believed it wasn't written for them. But everyone else agreed with me. So you were in a classic situation where a special interest group said that I was wrong, but everybody else ranging from novelists, ambassadors, ranchers, soldiers, and journalists agreed with me. Uh, So it created a kind of cultural split in literary opinion. And to this day, you know, 30-some years later, I still get letters from strangers who have read this essay for the first time and thanked me for explaining to them what was going on in American culture. And the irony here, which Dana points out, is that 28 years after the original article was published, the culture has found a really interesting way of solving the problem of the exclusivity of poetry. Young poets can't get jobs. <laughs> when professional poets are basically told that all they can do is work in creative writing, and as a result, there aren't that many jobs in creative writing, then poets, particularly in the U.S., are forced back into the general workforce. And this has created a rather remarkable plus side. When so many poets were forced into jobs outside of their field, they started having life experiences which would, as it should, shape a different kind of poetry. As these poets begin to have lives outside the university, they are now writing a very different kind of poetry, much more democratic, accessible, and diverse. Dana spoke with me very excitedly, honestly, about what he sees as the revival of poetry in the U.S. over the past decade, something which, as he points out, the media and even scholars haven't fully understood. There is a new generation of poets who are trying to engage rather than focusing their energies on getting institutional credentials and academic settings. These poets are hitting the streets, if you will, (laughs) venturing into the experiences of everyday Americans, including more diverse ethnic and religious populations and are making their craft accessible. 
And so with this original article, Can Poetry Matter? Back in 1991, Dana would slowly sow the seeds of change in the American poetry scene and, thank goodness, bring the craft slowly back into a more everyday existence. We'll speak more about the importance of poetry in our own lives in a little bit. But first, we have to address one other thing about this 1991 article. You see, little did Dana know, but this article would start to give Dana a platform as a formidable and influential voice in the world of American arts. And, much to his surprise, would shape the course of his life forever. I would be doing that for the rest of my life, but in 2002, I was asked by the president to lead the National Endowment for the Arts. The National Endowment for the Arts, an independent agency in the federal government which is charged with providing funding and resources for culture and art programs across the United States, from museum funding to education and to research. When Dana took over in 2002, he was immediately faced with an enormous problem. No one seemed to like the National Endowment for the Arts. <laughs> Conservatives thought the agency was simply a tool for liberal elites funding art, which was often offensive and vulgar. Liberals didn't think the agency pushed the arts enough, right? And always seemed unsatisfied with the government's role. And with a largely controlled Republican Congress in 2002, it looked like Mr. Joya was simply hired to go down with an already sinking ship. But through unbelievable discussions and forging relationships, Dana was able to convince lawmakers to keep the NEA alive, at least in order to prove its effectiveness in one area which everyone could find agreement, literacy. For several decades, literacy had declined, particularly among the youth and young adults ages 18 to 35. So Dana decided to make literacy the heart of his mission with the NEA, and he did so primarily in two programs. First, a poetry competition throughout the United States, particularly in high schools, called Poetry Out Loud. And second, through a nationwide initiative known as the Big Read. When we did the Big Read, we, you know, we tried to choose a great book, and we created a program so that the community would read it together. So it would be read in the high schools, in the libraries, in book clubs. It would be talked about on the radio, on public television, maybe 40 public events in the town that would call your attention to it. So that one of the things that people in town would talk about is Fahrenheit 451, The Great Gatsby, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, My Antonia, and that this would become one of the things that created, that was part of public culture versus sex scandals and Hollywood gossip and things like this. This program was immensely effective, mainly because it offered something of value, which was, again, think of Dana's mission here, easily accessible. And for the first time in three decades, the number of adults reading voluntarily went 
up in a huge way. For Dana, the success of programs like The Big Read is proof that we can change the culture we live in for the better if we do it with quality art and with a democratic vision and skill. And this wasn't simply limited to Dana's work in literacy, by the way. During his time at the NEA, Dana used his platform to bring all sorts of artistic works to the everyday American. I did it in a very simple and effective way. If you can bring the best art possible and present it in an accessible way, the art itself does all the heavy lifting. I wouldn't be surprised if you took a poll of just average people on the street, I would wager there's a good percentage who have never been to live theater. And Dana, realizing this, discovered that when you bring it to them, when you bring the art to the people, the art will speak for itself. Shakespeare does the rest, right? (laughs) And most importantly, they will have an experience that is unlike the rest of their daily life. They have an engagement with language that's more intense, that's more delightful, that's more moving. And what you're trying to do is simply open up a door in their lives that lead them to a positive, stimulating enlarging experience. You you can do this with paintings, you can do this with music, you can do this with drama, uh, you can do it with literature. Dana Joya led the National Endowment for the Arts for six and a half years. And after all of the difficulties and joys, he decided it was time to move on. The oddest thing about my life has been that when I'm really successful in business, in politics, in education, I always quit my job. You know, I, you know, I walk away from it because it's begun to dominate me in ways that I are not productive. And so Dana and his family retired to his home state of California, where for a few years he started part-time teaching at USC and decided the final lap of his professional life would be teaching and writing. That is until public service came calling once again, when California's governor, Jerry Brown, asked Dana to become the poet laureate for the state of California. For those of you who aren't familiar with this term, a poet laureate is the official poet of a state or country and is charged with informing the public about the benefits of reading and writing poetry. Our nation's current poet laureate is an amazing woman named Tracy K. Smith. Dana became the 10th poet laureate in California's history, and in the first days on the job, he assumed the role as any other poet laureate previously had. He began doing readings in the places you might expect in California, right? Berkeley, Los Angeles, San Francisco. But after a few readings, Dana realized something. He had spent his whole life trying to make the arts, and poetry in particular, accessible to everyone. And yet, here he was, reading his poetry to people who were, in a sense, basically already in the art scenes in these urban city centers. And then it occurred to me what my project should be. 
I should go everywhere else. I should go to the places which didn't have poetry readings, which didn't have a kind of public literary culture. California, as you can imagine, is an enormous state. (laughs) There are 58 counties. And when we think of the state, we usually think of the urban city centers because that's where a good amount of the population is condensed, right? But even though the largest county in California, Los Angeles, has 10 million people, there are some counties in rural parts of the state that are as little as a few thousand. And it's these places Dana decided to go. My plan, which I was able to execute at probably about 90%, was that I did not want to go anywhere and speak by myself. So everywhere I went, I arranged a kind of group appearance. I would read, but I would invite local poets to read. If there was a city laureate or a county laureate, I would invite him or her to read with me. Dana began by reaching out to local art communities to collaborate for events. He asked local high school students to read their poetry from Poetry Out Loud competitions, for example. These events are often held in local churches or libraries, and in many places, it was the first poetry reading the library or town had ever sponsored. And overwhelmingly, with a few exceptions, the events were immensely successful, standing room only kind of events. For a poetry reading, this is just amazing. (laughs) And to Dana, the success of these events was indicative of something very important. You know, what it demonstrated was that there is an appetite for poetry, you know, everywhere in this country, and especially among poor people, rural people who are generally assumed to be outside literary culture. So I did this uh, not to promote my own reputation because I'm well known. I was doing it in a sense to nurture poetry in California, to increase the size of the audience and to create a kind of public conversation about poetry, which doesn't exist in the media. And it's here where I think we need to highlight two more works of Dana's. And each happened to be selected works of poetry. When Dana agreed to speak with me, he was very gracious in sending me copies of some of his works and even highlighting poems he thought I might enjoy. And to be honest, I was a little bit nervous. (laughs) I worried that I wouldn't understand Dana at the level I was supposed to. I worried that the poetry might be too heady or academic. I worried that I wouldn't be able to slow down enough, right, to take in the words. But something rather beautiful happened instead. When I began reading Dana's selections, some of which I read with my husband, it was as if I was reading the deepest parts of someone's soul, but in a way that made me sympathize and understand him as if he were a lifelong friend. Dana's whole mission is encompassed in his poetry. They read as experiences we can all relate to. Over the years, Dana has written about nature, about the connectiveness with the divine, Some of his poetry speaks from the perspective of inanimate objects, even. He's written about grief, particularly the grief of losing his first son as a baby. He's written about love, too. 
my favorite poems are the simple, familiar ones about his marriage to his wife. They are really, really good. <laughs> but here's the thing. Dana would argue there isn't anything remarkable about what he's doing. In fact, the history of poetry is one of connecting and one of accessibility. People assume that poetry is a highly sophisticated art that requires a great deal of education to appreciate. That is simply not the truth, either historically or in practical terms. Poetry is the oldest literary art. It existed before there was writing. Uh, people put experiences, rituals, history, stories, songs into poetry, and they spoke, literally spoke to an audience. In all of history, there has been a direct connection with the poet and the audience. That is, as many historians have described, up until about the First World War. Around this time, due to the rise of modernism and rise of newer forms of entertainment, especially radio and films, poetry suddenly became one of just dozens of media available to the public. But there's something else which can explain how poetry slowly fell out of favor among Americans in the arts world. You know, my mother was a working class Mexican person from Los Angeles. You know, she did not have much education, but at almost every level of her education, she was required or encouraged to memorize and recite poems. So she had almost no education in poetry insofar as you would find in today's colleges. She couldn't, you know, do the kind of formal analysis that, you know, that we expect an English major. She never went, she never had a, you know, never went beyond high school. But she knew poetry by reading it, reciting it, and memorizing it. Poetry was an intricate part of Dina's mother's everyday life. And because of this, poetry for Dina always felt immediate and powerful. As a boy, Dana's mother regularly recited poetry to her son, and it provided her with a source of comfort and joy amidst life's challenges and suffering. My mother was not unusual. Most Americans, if you go back, you know, 80, 100 years ago, knew lots of poems by heart. Poetry was something that you heard, you recited, you memorized. Uh, it was part of the general culture. Poetry today, and I would bet this is your experience, is a, an art where they give it to you and you are supposed to analyze it. Dana spoke at length with me about how many people are inclined to read poetry today. Rather than poetry being something you speak and hear and feel, poetry has become something you think and see and analyze, right? It has gone from the performance and imaginative side of our brains to the analytical side. And as a result, many of us feel as if we can't approach it. But Dana's poetry isn't like that. It connects with you in a simple and personal way so that you aren't inclined to analyze it. Instead, you just find yourself sitting with the words. I never talk 
down to people. But what I think I do is to try to call forth the best version of that person intellectually, imaginatively, even ethically. And this is most evident when Dana's poetry enters very subtly and beautifully into a deeper realm of existence. My poetry is most alive when I place the poem or the experience of poem in the everyday world, but there's something in the world which allows us to see a metaphysical uh, realm of existence, that, to sense the divine, you know, that you're in time, but you get a glimpse of eternity. You, you are in the material world, but you have the sense that there is something beyond it. Or if you can't connect yourself to what is beyond it, you understand, in a sense, the hunger that one has for that larger sense of meaning. So I think it's time to dive into two selected works of poetry by Mr. Dana Joya. Works which perfectly encompass, for me at least, this meeting of the supernatural and natural, of the believer and the doubter. First up, a narrative poem called Haunted. Haunted is a narrative poem I wrote. It's about six or seven pages long, and it tells a love story that halfway through becomes a ghost story. Haunted tells the story of a pair of young lovers who, in a weekend away to the Berkshires, experience a strange encounter with a ghost in an old, creaking hallways of his home. The poem is told in a narrative style, a style which Dina has hoped to revive in the later years of his career. And it has even been made into an opera ballet, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but he was made into a ballet by a man named Paul Soleri. The story is about money and sex and destructive passion and ultimately about being attracted to the wrong things and the wrong people. But at the very end of the story, you realize that it's been about something altogether different. The story is framed by somebody who's describing something that happened to him 40 years earlier. And it's only in the last couple of lines, you know, when you're suddenly out of the story and you're back with the narrator in the present moment, that you realize that he is a monk. This kind of story about money and sex and passion and kind of of destructive relationships is the precondition for him in a sense bit by bit through his you know through his following years to shed himself of material things and to find peace and meaning in a religious life i was fascinated by this point when i read dina's poem if you were to cut out the last few stanzas, the poem would read like any other story about young love, misguided and broken, and the lessons learned. But when you realize who the narrator is, when you realize the story is being told by a deeply religious man who is committed to a life of celibacy and sacrifice, then the story becomes about something entirely different. 
it is no longer about secular pursuits, but about a deeper meaning of what and who we are called to live for. As Dana puts it, the story becomes about centering our souls for what really matters. Echoing, as it turns out, what Dana's poetry has been about all along. But the fact is, is these critics are now discovering almost every poem I've written is is so Catholic, you know, that, it's, that it makes me wonder, you know, if, if I, you know, if my imagination can go anywhere else. But it's it's at a very deep level of my experience, and so my poetry is very sacramental, and it's about the the presence of the divine everywhere in our life. Which brings me to the third piece of writing of Dana's that we will talk about today. A classic poem called Pity the Beautiful. When Dana sent me a book of his poetry called 99 Selected Poems, he highlighted a handful of poems he thought that I might enjoy. There were several I really liked, including one called Angel with the Broken Wings, among many others. But the one I kept coming back to, and the one which I found so fascinating, was Pity the Beautiful. Pity the Beautiful, to me, seems to perfectly encompass the accessibility and depth of Dana. It is accessible in its brevity. It's a little bit shorter. But it also uses modern language. Dana, I'm not kidding, uses words like hotties and pretty boys and hunks. And yet we know as the reader that the superficial nature of even the words themselves is meant to give us pause. We are meant to, in a sense, pity the very things the world tells us we should desire. When Dana says his poetry is sacramental, he isn't simply speaking of the way he sees God in nature or the metaphysical discussions of faith in the poem Haunted. His poetry is sacramental in the way all poetry should be. Poetry should point to the source of all goodness and beauty. Poetry should lead the reader through the journey of encounter with the divine, even in the moments of doubt and unbelief. As an addition to my Lenten spiritual practices this year, I tried each day to read a poem. The point was to challenge myself not to analyze or to speed read, (laughs) which is so easy to do in this world of social media and flash media. But instead, I tried to sit and simply be with the words. I challenged myself to slow down and allow the poetry to speak to me as if it were God himself. Pity the beautiful, God said to me. Do not buy into the nonsense of constantly curated images and societal pressures. But pity the very things the world tells you to want. And instead, seek what is truly beautiful in me. Our call to the larger world now is almost entirely in terms of ethics. But guess what? The secular world talks ethics all the time. What is different about our call? And I think that it's, in a sense, our role in the creation for which we were made. And having that sense of beauty and reflected in every 
element of this. After my husband and I listened to the first draft of this episode, he told me that although he continues to struggle reading poetry, he's an analytical person by nature, an engineer, <laughs> and the temptation to analyze everything is very strong for him. <laughs> but he's also so perceptive because he said he realized how much he does love poetry, but in the form of song. I smiled when he said this because as it turns out, Dana views poetry the same way. You know, I'm unusual in that I do a lot of work with composers. And it's because, I mean, I think that's a natural thing for a poet. I mean, who writes lyrics? Poets. Poetry began in the ancient world as song. You know, I think it's healthier when it reconnects. I've just done a jazz album with Helen Sung. Helen Sung and Dana have known each other for over a decade, admiring one another's works and offering encouragement to one another in their respective crafts. And just this fall, Helen released her newest album, Sung with Words, based on the poetry of Dana's, including some song lyrics written specifically for the album by Dana. Helen has a delightful line in a recent interview with NPR about the collaboration when a friend of hers said, Great! Two of the least popular things together, jazz and poetry. (laughs) But listeners, I can't explain to you how good these songs are. It is remarkable how the compositions seem to perfectly fit with the words, as if they were meant to go together all along. And in fact, several composers and musicians have reached out to Dana over the years, asking to collaborate and specifically asking to use Pity the Beautiful. But Dana would tell them, that one is for Helen Sung. And thanks to Dana and Helen's generosity, we get to feature it in our episode today.
One more thing before we go, listeners. I didn't simply reach out to Dana because of his impressive resume in the secular arts world, right? I reached out to Dana because I knew him to be a man of deep faith. And so I wanted to know, what is his final professional lap? What will his lasting legacy be, especially as a Catholic man? I think each decade of my career as a writer has brought me into different cultural battles. 80s and 90s, I spent my efforts sort of trying to, to rebuild poetry's position in public culture. Uh, at the NEA, I tried to rebuild art in our educational system and to rebuild literacy in the United States. But right now, I see my primary work is trying to re-engage the church with culture. Dana has written a lot more in recent years about the struggles of the church to articulate the gift of beauty and the arts to the broader culture. He speaks of how the American church had, for several decades at least, seemed to abandon beauty altogether. But his writing, while challenging, is also immensely filled with hope. In our generation, Dana is starting to discover the incredible artistic gifts being offered to the church, and he wants to lift up the next generation of artists and creatives. I look on this as as the beginning of the last part of my career, because I, I enjoy a level of fame you know, which allows me to be heard. Part of my work is to sort of create the pathways where younger writers and artists can find their audience. And when you think about it, that's exactly what Dana is doing when he's talking to me. He's a man of his word, (laughs) and he's speaking with a small, itty-bitty Catholic creative who simply wants to communicate the importance of the arts to the modern world. Dana's professional life has been incredibly successful, but it's also been incredibly consistent. He wants and has always wanted to make the arts accessible. What is it like in a society when all of the stories, all of the songs, and all of the images are created by people who either don't care about faith or may actually be aggressively inimical to faith? Well, uh, I don't have to answer the question because we live in the society. In the conversation which constitutes American culture, all these different voices coming together, we need to cultivate a stronger, more imaginative and creative series of Catholic voices. Dana Joya has seen firsthand what happens when you attempt to revive the arts and the lives of everyday Americans. And not just from a data perspective, right? He doesn't see the world in analytical terms. For him, when we encounter beauty, when we encounter art, which is true and good, our lives are enriched for the better and our souls are connected ever deeper to all which we cannot see. There's no reason that the same revival of poetry and literature and good art that Dana has seen over his several decade career, there's no reason that same renaissance of poetry and art and literature can't also happen in the church. 
And it turns out, as I have discovered over the past few months, this renaissance has already begun. Next time, in about a month, we're diving into season two and the world of beauty and the Catholic arts. We'll see you then, listeners. Thank you so, so, so much (laughs) to Mr. Dana Joya for letting me speak with him today about his amazing works and his absolutely amazing career in the world of the arts. Dana has a new book out with Wise Blood Books called The Catholic Writer Today and Other Essays. I highly recommend you get it. It is so fascinating. And thank you so much to Helen Sung for letting me use her work, Pity the Beautiful. You can get her album, Sung with Words, on iTunes or wherever you buy your music. All right, folks. Season 2 begins almost exactly one month from today on May 17th. I cannot wait to slowly unveil this season to you over the next few weeks. In order to get glimpses of this season, please, please support us on Patreon. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And keep an eye out for our season two trailer, which will launch in a few weeks. God bless you. And we hope you have a very beautiful Triduum and Easter season. <laughs>